Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Happy Sunday, June 4th, 2023. June, of course, uh, as most of us know, I hope all of us know, is Pride Week. Uh, or Pride, sorry, not Pride Week, Pride Month, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, LGBTQ Pride Month uh, is celebrated every year in the United States to honor and celebrate the 1969 Stonewall uprising in Manhattan. Of course, lots of rivalry between New York and San Francisco of on that front, uh, I live just above the Castro in San Francisco. I was just in the Castro last night. Lots of beginning, early celebration of pride. But, of course, the culture wars are hotting up again in the United States. Lots of controversy about boycotts of companies that embrace pride. Taylor Swift's just in the headlines um, arguing that we can't talk about pride without talking about pain. Not everyone is a big fan of Pride Month or of so-called pride marketing. Uh, some anti-pride people are boycotting companies like Target and Bud Light uh, because uh, they've embraced the, uh, uh, the, the Pride Month. One man who is all too familiar with these cultural battles is my guest today, Paul Burston. He has a new book out, uh, a memoir, We Can Be Heroes, A Survivor's Story. Wonderful. Song. Uh, and Paul, as I said, is a veteran of these cultural wars. He's joining us from Kennington, uh, South London, just near the Oval Cricket Ground. Paul, um, I'm not sure how closely you're watching these new culture wars in the United States. I'm guessing that we have similar sorts of things going on in the UK. How familiar, though, are they? Is history repeating itself or is there something different today? It feels to me like history itself. Um, I came out in 1985 and in this country, slow relaxation of laws around particularly male homosexuality and by the mid 80s partly as a result of the AIDS and the, a lot of the fear mongering and hatred that was raised up during that period but also partly because that we had at the time we suddenly had the first piece of anti-gay legislation was section 28 so um, there were similar calls and concerns made around uh, the impact about LGBT, or as we call it then, lesbian and gay lives and younger people and, you know, debate available in schools stuff. So a lot of the things that have feel very familiar to me. Your book is... Um very personal, very confessional, very painful on some levels. Does the reappearance of these culture wars, which of course never really went away, do they make you feel uncomfortable, uneasy or triumphant? What particular emotion do they bring out in you? They make me feel uneasy. Um, a couple of years actually, I took part in the verbatim 
Riot Act and the created that as a guy called Alexis Gregory and he interviewed one of the surviving thermal riots that you mentioned in New York, Michael, another radical drag actor called Vin and, and, and all three of us, this was five, six years prepared and he did the DNA, all three of us expressed concern that things shift in the air and things seem to be maybe rolling back. Um, I did give a warning in, in that play and I I am quoting freedom and that for a long time I thought of us assumed, many people in our communities assumed that the programme would somehow just wouldn't go back and we wouldn't we wouldn't return to those to those days where we had so uh, hatred being whipped up by by certain people so i think in some ways i find the familiar i also know, know from from experience as a community when we pull together that we can overcome and you know certainly at the start my activist years i'm only 20 I didn't think then for a second that we would be able to actually change anything. And subsequently in the in the years that followed in, in the UK, um, 15, 20 years, nearly every piece of legislation was there was overturned and changed. And by the time I was 38, much for equality legally, some be one. And that's why the emphasis in my book, although there's a lot of truth in my book, I wanted the emphasis on that it, that it's a story of survival and that one can survive that. Maybe looking back, I, I would have maybe taken a slightly different look and that some of the some sometimes I may. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Well, we all, uh, yeah. one way or the other. Because it may be best for me, yeah. Right. Um, it, it's hard to know whether to be optimistic or pessimistic about what's happening. Last year, I did a show with Sasha Eisenberg, who written a, a really important book on uh, the history of America's same-sex marriage and the way it went from being a complete no-no to being accepted. I wonder whether there's a case to be made that some of these latest battles, these people boycotting companies like Target and Bud, that it's a rearguard action, that this is one of the final wars, that these people are so desperate and bizarre that uh, after a while, most mainstream people are indifferent at most to this stuff. They simply don't care what people get up to in their bedrooms. Is there any truth to that? I would agree with that assessment. Absolutely. I think also, you know, I mean, Harvey Milk many years ago said that, you know, free interpersonal came out of the closet. Uh, when he was assessed in the 80s, people who for all kinds of reasons didn't come out whether it's because of their jobs or their family and I mean I I often see young same-sex couples on the tube or on a train or walking down the street holding hands thing that my generation or certainly I would never have done when I was when I was a young man I was far too frightened of what what the reaction would be when I see them I feel I feel I feel a sense of progress and a part of me feels a bit protective and anxious on their behalf. 
um, and a bit sort of paternal. I think the reality is that that generation have grown up in a world where as you, people don't really care, um, there aren't that virulently our community in the way they used to be. Um, I mean, I remember going, you know, going, coming from AIDS funerals of people who died of AIDS and going on to television where I was the only person um, our community and expressing grief over these the deaths of these young men while the other the other panelists on the on the program were all gloating over it that wouldn't happen now there may be well, may, there may be, well be one person written but that wouldn't be the, the main anymore so I think more and more people have come out more and more people have where there has been greater acceptance of LGBT as people sequence I think any attempts to try and push the genie back into the bottle are going but I do that there's at the moment a lot of capital to be made so it's, it's happening here as well in the UK we've got a government which is failing spectacularly in just about, about everything that this has been a disaster many people predicted it would be don't, don't seem to have a to handle on the you know, the cost of living crisis is ridiculous. People are unable to pay their heating bills. And so they're trying to attract attention from the real issues. But I think most of that. Do you think the same is true? Um, DeSantis, for example, as I'm sure you know, in the US, the governor of uh, uh, Florida is running on an aggressive culture wars platform. Do you think the same is true in the US as more and more people struggle uh, inflation, unemployment, all the various crises that people fall back on all this nonsense. I, 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 I think it's the same in the US. It's the same the world has been throughout history. Whenever we have those occasions, whenever we have you know, a situation where, where government is failing on the economy, when, when Thatcher brought in Section 28 or Clause 28 as it was because basically a huge satisfaction with broken, with broken promises that had made and end up with a government which is failing in its fundamental duty to support at large and vast swathes of the population are basically being neglected or falling by the wayside here and certainly in the states as well from, from what I'm reading then you, you, I can see where the motivation comes from it's much easier to point the finger at Queer people, however it may, but to somehow look, look at other people and try and other make rather than dealing with us as a community as a whole, which means all of the citizens of that country. Paul, well, I wonder um, whether there's something though darker going on as well. We, we've done a number of shows about the various kinds of authoritarian governments, anti-democratic governments around the world. Did one about. Orban in Hungary, who's very aggressive on the culture wars front, did an interview with Dorota Redai. She uh, she has uh, she's the publisher of an important new LGBTQ book of fairy tales. Does it worry you the appearance of all these you know, outside the UK and the US? You're obviously very familiar with the UK, but with the Orbans and the Erdogans and obviously the Putins of the world, uh, the the Bolsonaros, who are all aggressively anti-gay who symbolize the gay that the gay community um as 
everything that in their views gone wrong with the world and refuse to accept that you can be gay and Russian or gay and Hungarian or gay and Turkish. That's I mean, the Bolsonaro is close to home because my civil partner is from Rio originally. And uh, there were big discussions between him and certain friends of his um, who voted um, and some relationships floundered as a result of that because, you know, be before he was even running for president, there'd been television with him in this country. Even Fry, the actor, interviewed him for a series he did. And he was saying that if he had a, he would rather than a gay son and things like that. There were already these indications that this, this man was going to run on a very, very homophobic ticket. Some people that have a long-term friend husband uh, wrote for him because it was incredibly difficult for, for him and, and for me because you think well are our lives you know did, does it does this person hate gay people who supposedly love your gay brother friend that's quite a big question um happening here um questions of moment are to do with the Q plus people and also to do with migrants crossing the channel from France and barely a day passes without being a news item story about the how these these people are the cause of all the problems in society rather than is the, the, the trans community though Paul is to some extent is dividing the gay community, isn't it? I mean, it, it's quite controversial and complicated. Where, where do you stand on it, particularly in the context of your own survivor story, your narrative? Is it something that's central in, in your life or is it a, a, a marginal issue? It isn't central. I mean, I've, I've had I'm trans women who I've known since the 80s and I'm also friends with some and they were opposite sides of these so-called debates. And it's a very difficult situation when people who are part of the same community, as I believe they are, are at loggerheads. But it was ever thus. I mean, back in the 80s, it was a long time, and certainly. And it wasn't really until Section 28. The first time I went to a gay pride march in 1985, and there was less. There were two separate marches. It wasn't until it reared its ugly head that the community came together and there was the biggest marches of queer people this country had ever seen at that point. And I suspect a similar thing is going to happen. Hope, well, I'm, I'm hoping and suspecting a similar thing will happen as we go forward, that we will put aside the difference community because the people on us and want us removed from public life, or they want to beat us up, don't distinguish between LGBTQ or anything else. They hate all of us. So we so while acknowledging that there are differences within our communities, you know, there are also lots of issues to do with disability of people of certain faiths or of certain racial backgrounds and communities which are being tackled all the time in this country and often being you know, hotly debated. Um, I run a literary, live literary salon, um, which showcases... Polari, right? Yeah, Polari, which showcases LGBTQ+. I endeavour to do my 
their best to make sure that the, the people on those events, like people showcased, represent as, as diverse a range of people as possible. Um, right, and I think it's healthy to think that there's no reason why people of one kind of sexuality or another or one kind of gender should think alike. The fact that they disagree is a good thing. Let's talk a little bit more about the book, um, We Can Be Heroes. Uh, it's your memoir. You're the author of a number of novels in the past. Why did you choose to write this book, Paul? Um, the, part of the reason is because I was, uh, I was meant to be writing a new novel and COVID uh, um, happened. Found it impossible to write fiction, and I think a lot of my, a lot of my friends thought that being locked being locked house would be the perfect situation for a writer to be in. But for me, it isn't like fiction. I need to be out in the world because I I tend to write very uh, work. So I put the I put I put the novel aside that I wasn't able to write, and who persuaded me that I should sit down and write this memoir that I'd been sort of talking about maybe writing at some point. And I think the combination of that and also living through the first few months of the pandemic when certainly in this country, and I'm sure in America, there was so much fear and anxiety about what was going to happen and how many people were going to die. It brought back so many memories of living through the previous pandemic that I lived pandemic. So it made sense to during that period. And, uh, uh, partly because as a, my training, background is journalism and I fiction books before I wrote novels so it wasn't a big leap um the difficulty was was trying not to write like a novelist because I tend to write mostly nowadays uh crime fiction I tend to foreshadow so the first draft of my memoir I kept foreshadowing things that were to come way to write a memoir it's best if the reader um realizes the event as when it happens to you as, as they're giving them a hint that it's coming up on a few chapters ahead. So it, it actually was written Did quite... you have particular memoirs in mind as models? I, I'm just um, reading, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's an amazing memoir, Lucinda Williams, the folk rock star, uh, remarkably, uh, remarkably confessional and honest and painful on lots of levels. Are there models for you uh, in terms of this memoir? Were there memoirs written by people that you wanted to somehow emulate in form or message? If there, was one, there was one at all, I would say it was Derek Jarman, because Derek Jarman... Yeah, the uh, great filmmaker. Yeah. I had, a, I had the great pleasure of, of being, when I was very young, um, in a nightclub, and, and then met him again years later as a journalist when I interviewed him, and we became friends. And I, one of the first books I ever read when I came out was his first Dancing Ledge. And and he talked often about the personal story in so much of what was then called gay literature, um, you know, fictionalized accounts of so on. And there were so few people who were very publicly out at that time in the early 80s. There weren't gay characters on soap operas and things like that, like we have. To read the story of someone speaking in their own voice about their own experiences was, was definitely an inspiration for me. And, and I was re work during the period leading up to writing this memoir. Not that I was reading it for that reason. I wasn't knowingly, but I do think that kind of triggered it, perhaps.
And also um, Naked Civil Servant, which was a book that I, I first encountered through the television adaptation. Right, and you note that in the book. Um, you saw that when you were 10, and, and already then yeah. uh, uh, you were terrified of him and your step, your, uh, uh, your stepfather suggested that you might turn out like Quentin Crisp. Yeah. And it, and it was afraid of me when I was that age. You know, years Why do you think he said that? Was he joking? Was it? I think he was joking. He's a very, very kind-hearted man. I said that he wouldn't, he wouldn't say anything to be hurtful. Um, when I did subsequently come out some, some 10 years later, he apologized because he remembered and he apologized. But at the time, um, you know, it wasn't, he, he, his, his actual words were, your mother's worried that you might turn out like that. That was, those were his exact words. But I was also worried. Um, to me, that meant something so alien and other. And, and the, the life that Chris led and the, the life that's portrayed in that, that film is one of a perpetual victim. And that really scared me. I'd have been victimized by that point in my life. So... I sort of grew grew up and came out, and then re when I read the actual source material, the, that I realised how incredibly brave he was, and what a courageous person he was, to openly as he did during that time, which was still in the wake of the Wild Case and illegal. You could be in prison, so he became. He or uh, went from being what happened to Alan Turing? I mean. Uh... Exactly. So he, he went from being this figure of sort of a, a figure that sort of horrified me to a figure that I admired. Great. Even though he was, he remained very controversial because Quentin had up trouble. So he, he was often falling foul of political movement because he would say things that were very mm. odd. Which is a healthy thing. I mean, how would you summarize your life? You were famously there when the AIDS crisis hit. Is that the defining event in your life, do you think? Certainly from a political point of view. Point in my life, because up until that point in my life, I'd, I'd been, I'd had trauma, I'd been bullied a lot, and I never ever fought back. I was that kid, I was the kid that people would beat up and I would myself. And when AIDS... And would they beat life, you up because of your... Your, my your, your yeah. perceived sexuality? Absolutely, from a very young age. I was, I was being called uh, Puff and Pansy and Sissy in the playground when I was seven. Um, and and that, that continued. But when AIDS came into my life, it obviously was already around, but it had an impact on my generation. I was 23 in 1989, and I had no choice. I thought, I, I, I have to fight this. I have to, I, have to, I have to stand up and fight now. I have no other choice because the stakes are dying all around me um, but I didn't realize at the time it was a turning point it's only looking back now that I see how central that that, that was and so Act up which was the group I was part of which obviously started in the states but also sprung up here as well as in Paris and other places um, yeah, Act formed up, in March 1987 by Larry Kramer I think yes and then in February 1989 in the UK and I went I went to the very first meeting and through I think it was partly for 
the grief and anxiety because like many people, I, I hadn't been tested because the prognosis was so bad at that time. I didn't want to know. Um, I was afraid that if I did get positive, that I, I might have thoughts which I'd already had. So I avoided the, until the new medications came along and, um, and, and it was a much better prognosis. At the time, there was so much anxiety and fear and grief and I knew that I had this very self-destructive side. And if I didn't feel it that was constructive, that I would probably self-destruct. So I threw myself into ACT UP, which was incredibly, and it gave me an outlet and it made me feel like I was doing something positive and helping in some way. I'm not medically trained. I couldn't help in a, in a, in a practical way, but I could help by being part of a group that was trying to raise awareness around the various issues affecting people with HIV and AIDS at that time. The here was quite different to the one about medications. It was more to do with um, access to health care, uh, social security, uh, prejudice, lack of access and condoms and safer sex materials and things. So the homophobia of the press, I mean, the, the, the press at the time was um, even up until the mid, early to mid-90s, it was pretty appalling. Columnists suggesting that gay men should be rounded up and put on an island somewhere. People, they, they would shoot who, their Who sex. said that? What, what, what columnist said that? I can't remember. Probably someone like Richard Littlejohn. But there was, I mean, there were all, there were so many of them. There was one guy mm. called George Gale who wrote for the Daily Mail. Yeah, I remember him. Uh, yeah, we, we, we staged demonstration against him he was you know he wasn't unique it was quite commonplace at that time how was how, 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 how what, what's the best strategy for pushing back with simply journalists like yourself and andrew sullivan people who were revealed well, I mean, their I, own identity and are honest I, I i became a journalist because because of my frustration with activism really because I was an actor, and I, I got very frustrated that the, the actions that we were taking were often being misreported or not reported. So I realized that one way of um, taking control of that was to become a journalist and take control of the narrative and write the articles myself. So in 89, and I had my first piece of journalism later that same year, and then I became a regular client in 93 and I was there for 20 years which was a at that time it was pretty much the only platform the gay press that had a nowadays we have many of them in, in, the, in the mainstream media here but back then we had none um, I was a pretty much a lone voice for a long time and that gave me a, a way of reaching a wider audience because Time Out was a mainstream read by everyone not just preaching to the choir um, although I think, you know, a lot of stuff that the gay press did was invaluable and obviously it was really important. But for me, I felt it was more important to try and reach a wider audience. And, and I think for many people, it's time that they really heard a first-hand account of what was happening. That's one of the things I write about in the book quite a bit, which is that Larry Kramer famously said that living through the AIDS crisis was like living through a war here certainly is that it was a war in which many people didn't seem to know there was a war happening <laughs> it was just happening well carried on as normal and that created you know this this real stress because 
I was falling out with you just couldn't understand why I'm angry um, because all my friends and I was 23 years of age. I mean, as if that were normal. So I think there were a lot of things that went into making me become a journalist. And one of them was certainly being part of ACT UP. That, that was the sort of spring. Yeah, board. and certainly the political, we, we all remember in the US at least the remarks of Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan on this. Uh, I love this, the title of the book. I'm a big fan of David Bowie. Uh, his oh, great. <laughs> great song, um, uh, 1977 song, Heroes, of course, suggests we can be heroes. We can be heroes for just for one day. Did you choose the title because of Bowie's focus on human agency? Yes, I mean, he literally saved my life. I mean, I, I was 14 years of age, living in a small town in South Wales, any gay people. I knew of somebody there who was a friend of my stepfather's who committed suicide. And I was considering suicide, depressed and troubled and fearful that I'd be rejected. And I saw David Top of the Pops, or maybe it was the Kenny or the other, performing Boys Keep Swinging, um, which was in 1979, which he is making fun of what being a boy means. And in the, in the background, there are three backing singers, three women, and they're all him in drag. And at the time, it, I was sort of hiding behind the sofa on, on one hand, but also so excited. All the albums and I hope you didn't watch it with your stepfather, did you? Or your no, mother? I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't on that occasion. Um, and read about him. At the time, although I was, you know, being a bit of a back fan because I was getting into him, you know, long after the sort of Ziggy Stardust and the, and the really famous period of his career in the early 70s. But he was the only voice that I read or heard who didn't only say that being gay or bisexual was okay but it was actually something cool and something to aspire to he made it seem like uh yeah, great was... man david very much much right. missed let's end um uh we we did a show uh with michael jeffries an academic here on what life is like for black lgbtq students in american colleges today he has a book out black and queer on campus he suggests that there are still a lot of young people, especially uh, African-Americans in America who, who have experienced your childhood. I hope many of them will read your book, but what does your book tell young people, uh, Paul, about surviving and prospering um, and not being somehow undermined by whatever sexual choices they choose to make? One of the things that I would say is that, you know, as being a brave person, I thought I was told I was a Howard, in me to be brave, and I discovered that that wasn't true. I could find the, the resolve. I could, and that if you find people like yourself, or people who are allies to people like yourself, and find you find strength in numbers, that can be a huge, huge, huge. I also think that for younger people, it may be. They have a great thing, people of my generation, which is that you, you, you're never alone because you, you can always find people to talk to who are going through similar situations to yourself, which is not kids. So um, 
I've got friends from different communities, uh, religious and ethnic communities who've had a much tougher time. White kids, generation, coming out with stuff with their families, but they, but they battle on. And, you know, you're often stronger than you think you are. People are often stronger than they think they are. And it's only when your back's against the wall and you're sort of forced into a, you have to come out fighting that you realize that. And you realize that we can all be heroes. We do all have the capacity to be heroic, even if it is it's just for one day. That's the great, you don't need to be heroic every single day. You could be heroic, heroic for one day and that one day will make a difference. X